a lot of doctors, most doctors actually, most healthcare professionals have not had education in menopause management. And after the Women's Health Initiative study came out, I think there was just the sense that, well, there's nothing to be done about it. And so it wasn't taught anymore in the training programs. And so what you have is a generation of medical providers that have not received education on menopause. That's Dr. Stephanie Fabian, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, where she evaluates and treats women with menopausal, hormonal, and sexual health concerns. Dr. Fabian is also the medical director of the North American Menopause Society, a group dedicated to promoting women's health through an understanding of menopause and healthy aging. She most recently served as the co-principal investigator on a significant Mayo Clinic study focused on the impact of menopause symptoms on women in the workplace. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. While there's historically been a lack of focus on menopause, that tide appears to be changing. Today, Dr. Fabian and I explore how we can better understand the health and human impact of menopause, the contribution of hormone therapy, and how to better support women in this important and productive stage of life. welcome to Dr. Stephanie Fabian. We are truly fortunate to have a leading voice in menopause here today. And I'd like to start out with this quote from Dr. Fabian. Women are driving the conversation around menopause, demanding treatment options and refusing to be defined by the status of their reproductive organs. Women are not willing to experience their mother's menopause. So Dr. Fabian, menopause does seem to be having a moment. What are you seeing? Yes. Well, I'm really happy to see that menopause is having a moment. I I don't think I've ever seen this much dialogue around the menopause transition as we've seen in the last one to two years, maybe. But really, I think 2023 is the year of menopause, if you will. So not to belabor the pun, but menopause is hot right now. (laughs) So is that coming, do you think, from the Gen X, the 43 to 58 year olds who are currently in that perimenopause stage? Um, Is it coming from the older millennials who are pushing into their 40s? That's a good question. I think it's probably largely Gen X right now. I I think the baby boomers have experienced menopause for the most part, and the youngest baby boomers are now postmenopausal. So what we're seeing now, the women starting to go into it are the Gen Xers. So I, I think, yes, you're correct about that. They're the ones that are sort of driving this conversation. The oldest of the millennials is now turning 42 this year. So um, we will be hearing their voices as well. You're the lead author on a 2023 paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings with an intriguing title, Impact of Menopause Symptoms on Women in the Workplace. Now that's practically clickbait for some of us. Can you share an overview of those findings? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, We looked at women who were receiving primary care at any of the Mayo sites, Uh, who were 45 to 60 years of age. So these are just women receiving primary care, not seeking care specifically for menopause symptoms. And we invited them to be part of a survey on menopause and work. Actually, we just said menopause. We didn't even tell them it was about work. And we asked a lot of questions about menopause symptoms. What were they experiencing? And was it impacting their 
work uh, environment at all. So we asked about missing days of work related specifically to menopause symptoms, missing hours of work, quitting, retiring, or changing a job because of menopause symptoms. And what we found was fascinating. We got back over 5,000 surveys, and of those, about 4,400 women were employed at the time, and we included those women in the study. And these women were having moderate menopause symptoms uh, and and not necessarily receiving care for them. They also told us that uh, about one in eight, or about 13% of them, were experiencing an adverse work outcome directly related to their menopause symptoms, in, the, in their opinion. Um, we found that about 11% of them were actually missing days of work due to menopause symptoms, and the mean number of days missed was three. So that's staggering. That's that's a huge amount of work missed related to menopause symptoms. And we calculated that in the United States, that loss of days of work came to uh, a dollar amount of about $1.8 billion dollars annually in the U.S. alone. And that wasn't even counting missed hours of work or not taking a promotion or quitting or changing a job because of it. Um, so so that's really an underestimate of the issue. And not counting presenteeism. Not counting presenteeism. And let's also just take into account that these women were getting primary care at the Mayo Clinic and all of them had access to specialized menopause care at the Mayo Clinic. There you go. It's it's not a representative sample of working women. No, not at all. So the real story out there is probably much worse. You brought up symptoms. Let's talk about symptoms. So some of the symptoms that the research associates with menopause transition are hot flashes, night sweats, mood changes, and change in sexual function. Can you talk a little bit more about those? What you're describing is more that menopause transition and women in that transition, this can go on for six to 10 years before a woman actually experiences her last menstrual period. So these symptoms can occur well before a woman is actually in menopause. What you described are a lot of symptoms, but there's some other ones like palpitations and joint aches, which are incredibly common. In fact, the joint aches may be one of the more common symptoms of menopause that we are hearing about now. What you've just described and what I've said is uh, a whole lot of different symptoms that a woman could be in different doctor's offices for. So she might be seeing a cardiologist for palpitations. She might be seeing a urologist for her urinary tract symptoms and more frequent UTIs. She might be seeing a gynecologist for the vaginal dryness or the irregular periods or heavy periods. So one person, she might be seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist for her mood issues. So she might not even recognize that all of these symptoms are related to the menopause transition. And there are many physicians and healthcare providers that really don't recognize that all of these symptoms tie back to menopause as well. So I think we have an education issue, both with regard to women and with regard to the providers that are taking care of these women. Wow. So joint aches, they might be seeing an orthopedic too. I don't think we mentioned that. Who knew that was related to the menopause transition? Exactly. And and we're not even sure exactly why that is, but it could be almost a steroid withdrawal phenomenon where um, there are estrogen receptors all over your whole entire body. And so you can imagine those receptors are screaming a little bit when uh, they don't have any estrogen anymore. And so that is why we think that some women may have joint aches as a prominent symptom. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So, okay, so menopause transition, does that encompass perimenopause and early menopause? Or, or what, what is, what's the language we should be using? Yeah, that's exactly right. So that menopause transition is when you're starting to have irregular periods, that's in that perimenopause timeframe. And there's even further distinctions into early and late perimenopause. And then there's uh, that time when you've had your last period, but you don't know it's your last period until you've gone 12 months without a period. And when you've gone a full 12 months without a period, that's when you know you're in menopause. You actually entered menopause right when you had your last menstrual period, but you won't know that for a full 12 months. So that's why this terminology is a little confusing. But I think we can refer to all of that time frame as the menopause transition. So do some of these symptoms come in constellations? You're likely to have certain ones and not others? Or is it if you have one, you're likely to have more? Or, you know, how, how can you describe the, the symptoms and how common they are? There have been people who have tried to study symptom clusters to see if they group together in, in certain ways. But in general, practically speaking, it's very difficult to predict for one woman or another woman if you have a hot flash problem that you're also going to have joint aches. So we just are not that sophisticated in being able to advise women on what they'll experience. We do know that about 75% of women will have hot flashes or night sweats. And, you know, contrary to what we used to tell women a decade or so ago is, oh, don't worry about it. They'll last a year or two and you'll be fine. We now know that the mean duration of hot flashes and night sweats is about seven to nine years. And a a good uh, one third of women will hot flash for a decade or longer. So it's not something that you can typically just wait out if you're having a problem. Women should actually seek care because this could be a longer duration issue. Okay, so we haven't discussed brain fog. What is brain fog? Well, brain fog is a term that women have brought into the office, so it's not something that medical providers made up. It's what women tell us and that they feel foggy and they don't feel like they can concentrate and they feel like their memory is not very good. And so it's this overall sense of um, memory and concentration issues. Uh, When you actually do memory testing on women, as we've done in uh, research circumstances, my colleagues have, um, they've actually found that women who complain really do have a problem in terms of memory testing, and they tend to have issues on verbal memory testing. So it's real. Women are perceiving something that really is happening to them. The good news is that for most women, these symptoms do get better after they get through this menopause transition. Um, That's the majority of women. There may be some women that don't seem to bounce back afterwards, and those women may have more issues with social determinants of health, um, maybe more chronic disease, have HIV, something of that nature to where they may be more vulnerable to these changes and they may not necessarily bounce back. The other contributing factors that may be playing in are if a woman is sleep deprived, for example, she's having night sweats or insomnia, just plain old insomnia without night sweats is common during the menopause transition as well, or if she's having a mood issue like anxiety or depression, which can also cause difficulty with sleep. Um, So we know that maybe treating those other symptoms associated with menopause, the mood, the hot flashes, the sleep disturbance, can help women with this sense of brain fog. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Is it independent of those other symptoms? But it's a relief to read that, and I hope you can confirm this, that this type of 
menopause, transition, brain fog, forgetfulness, word loss is not associated with future dementia. It's not a harbinger. Is that right? It does not appear to be, although we really need longer term studies. We know that maybe a small group of vulnerable women, as I described, may not bounce back as much. And so what we don't have is the longer term studies to see if those women actually do go on to have a greater risk of dementia. But we know for the large majority of women that this seems to be a temporary thing. Well, let's talk about hormone therapy and how many of the symptoms we've discussed does hormone therapy help? That's a great question. Um, And hormone therapy hasn't really been studied for the whole mirage of symptoms that we get. You know, um, it has been studied for hot flash management, and it's extremely effective. The most effective therapy that we have for hot flash management, it reduces hot flashes by about 90 to 95%. It also does help with the mood issues that occur around the menopause transition. It helps with sleep. Um, so it does help with, with a lot of the symptoms that occur. The Women's Health Initiative study did also show us that um, women tend to have fewer joint aches and pains if they're on hormone therapy. We don't know if that translates to a lower risk of arthritis down the line or any less cartilage damage down the line, but we know it does seem to help with uh, joint pain. So let's review who's a good candidate um, for hormone therapy. And, and we, I notice, and you can explain why we don't say replacement anymore. I think that's quite an interesting point. Uh, and who should not use it? So we're not calling it replacement therapy anymore because we're not actually trying to replace what the ovary used to make. When we give estrogen after menopause for management of symptoms, it's often a very low dose that is sufficient to take care of the hot flashes and the night sweats and the sleep disturbance. We are not trying to get you back to a 20-year-old ovary Uh, and that level of production of estrogen. We are really just trying to manage symptoms. So that's why it's important not to use that replacement term because we're really not trying to replace anything. The one circumstance in which we might use the word replacement is when a woman goes through menopause under the age of 40. So that's called premature menopause. And for those women, for example, say a 35-year-old who either has her ovaries removed surgically or who goes into a spontaneous menopause that early, we do actually want to replace what her ovaries would have made. And so that in that circumstance, we would call it replacement. But for the average 50-year or 55-year-old going through menopause, it's not replacement therapy. So who's a good candidate? Well, women who are within 10 years of menopause onset and under the age of 60 years and who are having bothersome menopause symptoms, for the majority of those women, the benefits outweigh the risks. Who is not a good candidate for hormone therapy? Those women who are at really high risk for heart disease or have had a heart attack or a stroke or a blood clot or a history of breast cancer, those women are not really great candidates for hormone therapy. And we would first try other non-hormone options for management of their symptoms. I was interested to hear you say women who are at risk of heart disease are not good candidates because cardiovascular health risk factors go up during the menopause transition. So hormone therapy wouldn't counteract that. Well, that's a very complicated question because what's also happening during this menopause transition is we're getting older right? Our blood vessels are getting older. 
and we know that we're starting to develop disease because of age. So part of this is related to aging. You're correct that a lot of metabolic changes occur in the menopause transition that are actually associated with estrogen loss. We tend to have a worsening of our lipid panel. And in other words, our, our bad cholesterol goes up, the good cholesterol goes down. We tend to gain weight during this time. That's not just related to menopause, that's related to aging as well. If we gain weight, we're at higher risk of metabolic syndrome, we're at higher risk of diabetes. So diabetes risk goes up around this time, blood pressure tends to go up around this time. So all in all, our cardiovascular risk factors tend to look worse. That doesn't mean that we use estrogen to bring them back in line again. Uh, or to reduce our cardiovascular risk. That is not the case. We do know that the menopause transition is sort of a, a risk for cardiovascular disease and that women see an increased risk as they go through this transition related to the things that I just mentioned. Okay, so that's really helpful because, I mean, one of the things we discussed earlier is that the biggest sort of health impact of menopause transition is the impact on our cardiovascular health. So big picture, when you look at, I guess, all-cause mortality and morbidity, cardiovascular health is big. What are the things that can be done or should be done other than hormone therapy? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And it's important to note that um, heart disease is still the number one killer of women. We talk about it periodically, and then it falls off the radar. And it's really, really important for women going through the menopause transition to sort of take stock in their own risk, which, as I said, may be changing during this time. Women may develop high blood pressure when they haven't had it before. Their lipid panel might have been fine before, and now it's not. And again, the weight gain can be a problem and can increase risk of diabetes. So it's really important for women to sort of take stock of what their heart risk is at the time and start to modify those factors. Stopping smoking is important no matter how old you are. Maintaining exercise and even increasing exercise a little bit, um, really watching your diet and trying to avoid weight gain, which is so common during this time, keeping a regular sleep schedule, watching your stress levels, but all of those things um, that everybody knows are good for heart health are also good for brain health. Oh, that's helpful. Okay. So now let's say the woman who's experiencing natural menopause can't use hormone therapy for whatever reason, history of breast cancer or blood clotting or something like that. They're not getting the benefits of hormone therapy for bone health, for example, and, and other risk factors. What else is out there? Well, uh, again, it's what problem are we trying to solve? So if that woman is having hot flashes and night sweats, there are some non-hormone options that are available, including the really recent approval of another class of medications that, that that's non-hormonal just a week ago. The medication is called fezolinotant. It's an NK3 inhibitor. And it's working in the, at the level of the brain to stop hot flashes. So if it's a hot flash problem, we have other medications available, including some older drugs like the SSRIs, the antidepressants, gabapentin has been used, oxybutynin has been used. So there are a number of options available. There are also some non-medication options, including cognitive behavioral therapy, which has some proven benefit for hot flash management. Hypnosis has also been shown to work. So women have some options if they are unable to use hormones. It's good to know. What barriers need to be removed then when it comes to menopause symptom management? Because I have the distinct impression that most women aren't getting access to a Dr. Fabian and you know to this level of understanding. Why is that? What barriers do we need to overcome 
to improve this education, the awareness and access? Well, I think you just hit it on the head right there. So it's education and access. So a lot of doctors, most doctors, actually, most healthcare professionals have not had education in menopause management. And after the Women's Health Initiative study came out, I think there was just the sense that, well, there's nothing to be done about it. And so it wasn't taught anymore in the training programs. And so what you have is a generation of medical providers that have not received education on menopause. You also look at the curriculum that most educational programs have now. It's so massive. My daughter's actually in medical school right now. And, um, the, the whole topic of genetics is not included in her education. They're expected to know it. They will be tested on it, but it's not taught. So if the whole topic of genetics is not taught, then menopause stands a really slim chance of being taught in medical school. Oh um, and yeah. actually, we did a, a study on this and the majority of residency programs covering OBGYN, family medicine, and internal medicine, they receive maybe one to two hours of education on menopause during all of their training. And only 6% of of them said they felt comfortable managing menopause when they got out. And that includes OBGYN residents. So, mm. so the majority of providers aren't getting what they need in training. And so it's really left up to them to either get this on their own, or my feeling is what they do is just when the woman comes in, they're going, well, this is temporary, it's going to go away at some point. So, you know, just go manage it, um, rather than, digging in and figuring out what's going on. Um, but it's, it's more important than that. You know, women are suffering there. We just determined they're missing work because of this. So this is impacting women in adversely in many ways. So not, not just at work, but personally, um, their relationships, their well-being, their quality of life. And so it really is important that we manage these symptoms. Also, I'm going to flip it on the other side. Women don't necessarily know that all these symptoms are related to menopause, as I mentioned before. And I've actually had women come to see me at the Mayo Clinic, not understanding that this whole mishmash of symptoms that they're experiencing relates to menopause. So Imagine it would be very scary if you're gaining weight, you're losing hair, you've got palpitations, you're having anxiety attacks, um, you're sweating at night, and all of this can be scary, right? And, and it doesn't necessarily seem to fit together. So I've had women coming in thinking that something is horribly wrong with them um, when it's actually the menopause transition. And, you know, it's, it's annoying if you think about it kind of big picture and you think that globally women of menopausal age are making a huge contribution to the workforce. Um, I read in The Lancet nearly half of paid work in some countries and around 70% of unpaid work done by women. As the journal put it, they're making an essential societal contribution while society neglects a key stage in their lives. I mean, so they're experiencing a lot more suffering and misery than they need to. Oh, that's well put. And uh, I think one of my colleagues had a, had a great quote that there seems to be a high tolerance for women's suffering, mm. um, a high societal tolerance for women's suffering. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, we're neglecting an important part of the workforce. And this is a, a key event in many people's lives, um, over 50% of the world's population, right? And this is a universal event. It's going to happen to 100% of us if we're lucky enough to live that long. So not everybody is going to have symptoms. And there are a few lucky ones that literally just breeze through the menopause transition without, you know, anything bothering them. In fact, when I was writing the Mayo Clinic 
menopause book a few years ago, my mother said, why are you writing a menopause book? And I said, I never asked you what your experience was like, mom. What was it? And she said, I think I might've had a hot flash once at a cocktail party when I had a glass of wine and I went, well, <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. So she doesn't even get why we need a menopause book. Um, so there are some lucky people who, who really don't have symptoms, but the majority of women out there do. What would you say about the stigma or it's even been called a taboo? Well, first of all, it starts out when you're 12 and 13, you don't talk about periods. And then you know, I guess you just don't talk about menopause. I'm not sure it's taboo. Um, I, I think it has been in the past, but there's still a stigma attached to it. And I think in part, you know, pregnancy and lactation occur in younger women, right? Um, the menopause transition is also linked with aging. So I think by definition, there's a little bit of a stigma attached to it. And many women don't necessarily want to own it because it means they're of a certain age as well. If you look in Google images um, for menopause, there's usually some hot, sweaty, angry woman who looks old right? So that's typically the image and really who wants to be associated with that. So what guidance would you offer women who are seeking care for this transition? Who is the right provider by specialty? Does it need to be an MD, part of an integrated care team, anybody you can find on telehealth? I mean, where do you start and and how early do you start? Well, let me start with the the second one first. I would submit that women around the age of 35 should receive universal education on menopause because if you think about it, normal age of menopause is 45 and older. So if menopause symptoms can occur six to 10 years before your last period, that means we need to back it up to 35. So women 35 and older should be receiving education. Now, the question is what kind of provider? And I would just say, whoever is knowledgeable about menopause. And that could be a nurse practitioner. That could be um, an internist. It could be a family medicine doctor. It could be whatever. But I will tell you, there's no universally educated group. That's a little harder to find. I would suggest that women see their primary care uh, healthcare professional. And if they feel like their symptoms or their concerns or their questions are not being adequately addressed, then they seek um, information elsewhere. Menopause.org is the North American Menopause Society and has not only good information, evidence-based information, but also a locate a provider tab where women can find someone in their local area that is certified in menopause management. Now that we have telehealth, it may not be that you need someone in your same zip code to take care of you, but wherever that person is. And, and now that we're out of the public health emergency, I would say that whoever that person is has to be licensed in the state where you live if you've never seen them before. But whoever that person is should be knowledgeable in menopause management. And the North American Menopause Society offers a certification program that at least guarantees some minimal level of uh, knowledge and menopause management. But that doesn't mean that other people without that certification don't have that knowledge as well. But it's at least a way to sort of gauge whether or not your healthcare professional has a menopause knowledge. If the licensure requirements are met, a physical exam isn't necessary. So telehealth works fine, it sounds like. Well, I, I mean, with the caveat that women still need 
an annual breast exam and mammogram and they still need regular pap smears. So there's some things that have to be done in person, but it doesn't necessarily need to be concurrent with a menopause visit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that starting at the age of 35 is an eye opener too. And it, and it makes me just realize that we're missing a big opportunity to impact women's health and the health trajectory if we don't get on this and address the menopause transition pre-symptom. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because again, if women aren't even accurately identifying a lot of their symptoms as related to the menopause transition, and then how are we going to fix that problem unless we improve education? What thoughts would you have for employers and how they can best support women approaching and going through the menopause transition? Well, first, I think employers need to recognize that this is an important thing to do. So it's important for their employees. It's important for their bottom line. So recognition that they do need to take some action is the first thing. I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I think they need to educate employees. So the women, they need to also educate their managers and supervisors on how to even have a conversation about menopause that's sensitive and culturally sensitive and informed. So uh, I think that's the first step. It's also important to note that working women may not want to disclose their menopause status to their managers or supervisors. So women shouldn't have to talk about it at work, but they should be able to if they want to and if it's affecting their work. They should have access to care and whether that's through, you know, an employee assistance program. For example, some of the symptoms may may be able to um, go into existing pathways that employers have. For example, the mood symptoms. Most employers have pathways for employees who are struggling with mood issues. So it may be that some of these um, issues that women experience during this time can just flow through normal pathways. But also, as you mentioned, there may need to be some workplace accommodations. For example, more control over the temperature or access to breaks or some flexibility in schedules, those sorts of things. But the bottom line is women need to be able to talk about it at work and have somebody on the other end that is able to have a conversation. Although there was information in your paper, Impact of Menopause Symptoms on Women in the Workplace, and you said that it's potentially an unrecognized reason for the leaky leadership pipeline and the lack of women in senior leadership positions. So it is in companies' interest to make sure that this is addressed. Yeah, that's a really scary thought, isn't it? I have personally spoken to women who are in their uh, 50s and saying that they're either getting out of a leadership position or they weren't going to take one because they were afraid that their symptoms would limit them and that they wouldn't be able to perform to the level that they wanted to. So that women are even thinking that is a little scary and that, you know, if they, if they might be retiring early, they're compromising their retirement, they're potentially even jeopardizing their financial health later on. So I think there are so many uh, downstream implications that we need to consider here. Well, thank you so much for these thoughts. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fabian. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephanie Fabian at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, where she serves as professor and chair of the Department of Medicine. Her goal is to help women and their care providers access evidence-based information to improve menopause management and increase understanding of available treatment options. 
See the North American Menopause Society website for more information and a directory of providers who specialize in perimenopause, menopause, and healthy aging in women. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you liked the conversation, please leave us a review.